0: In uh, from the eleventh chapter of the book of Hebrews, if you've read that chapter before, uh, you'll know that it recalls different people in redemptive history, from Abraham to uh, many uh, unnamed saints who were persecuted in the first century, all of whom lived by faith. And perhaps more than any time in recent memory. Uh, We all find ourselves in what feels like somewhat of an overwhelming, uh, out of control, and even hopeless situation. We are confused by what we do know at times and quite fearful of what we don't. And all of us, I think, or perhaps just many of us, uh, find it probably hard to live by faith. Now, Chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews is famously called the Hall of Faith and it perhaps is better described as the Hall of Suffering. As you read it, you will see that most of those who were listed had difficult uh, times in which they were living by faith. And about them all, uh, the last chapter, I'm sorry, the last verse of chapter 11 tells us this, that though they were all commended through their faith, These did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. In other words, these people died in faith trusting in but not actually receiving in their lifetime what God had promised. These men and these women looked forward in faith not to the things that were seen, but to the things that were unseen, what the writer of Hebrews called something better. The writer of Hebrews continues his thought in chapter 12, right after that 11th uh, chapter, instructing present-day believers to whom he's writing to do the same as these who came before them. And in that first verse, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses of those who lived by faith let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of god We know that our race is not yet finished, but we all find ourselves in a very difficult leg of the race. But the power to endure is going to be found not by looking out, and it's really not even going to be found by looking in to ourselves. It is going to be looking up at the resurrected Jesus, sitting victoriously on his throne, and forward to something better with him. Now, even though we can't gather in person, praise God that we can gather in spirit and be inspired, if you will, with hope and stirred towards good works. And so to that end, what we are going to do is continue our study of Mark. I thought for about a millisecond of doing a special sermon series, I thought, no, this is where the Lord has us. He has us looking at Jesus. And we look at Jesus so that for a moment if just here for this hour we can take our eyes off the things below and set them on the things above, namely Jesus. So we are in the Gospel, Mark, and so far what we have studied and learned is that since the very first days of ministry, the King, Jesus, spoke and acted with authority. He had authority over demons. He had authority over disease. The return of our King, the return of Jesus, promises to bring restoration first to our souls and then one day to our bodies. And that will be a glorious day. Right now, as it is, sickness and disease and death reveal something that we all quickly forget, that the world is broken The things are not as they should be, and we don't want to waste this moment in time. It was C.S. Lewis who famously said, and I'm sure this has been blasted across the internet, that pain insists upon being attended to. That God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciousness, but he shouts in our pain. It is a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Our world is deaf, and dare I say, many Christians also have found themselves difficult of hearing. But pain wakes us up. And now, in this moment, when everyone is listening, we want to look at Jesus. Because we really need to be less concerned, though concerned less concerned with being safe temporally and more concerned with being saved eternally. There is a difference. And so we're going to look as the Spirit leads us in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. I'm going to read quite a few verses into chapter 6 and I'll explain how it all works together. Beginning in verse 13 of chapter 2 of the Gospel, Mark, God's Word says this, he, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him and was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and said to him, "'Follow me.' And he rose and he followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, and there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, says to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." But no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skin, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. And then one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and he made their way with his disciples, and they began to pluck Pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to him, Have you ever read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and he gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and so the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man and with the withered hand, come here. And he said to him, is it lawful on Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. His hand was restored. The Pharisees went out, immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him of how to destroy him. This is God's word. Now, in addition to the previous two kind of uh, interactions, if you will, with Jesus, added to the next three we just read, all five kind of collectively describe Jesus' confrontation with this religious group of leaders the Pharisees now the Pharisees were committed to separating from the secular world they were in many ways the conservative movement uh, in Judaism leaders in the uh, Jewish faith and they were committed to perfecting the practice of righteousness they were described many times in the Gospels as experts in the law and foundational to these Pharisees was a commitment to the written law, the law of Moses, and the oral law, which would be the Torah and the traditions, or their interpretations of the Torah. These two things were most important to him. And it was their commitment specifically to the oral traditions, the interpretations of the Torah, of the law, that brought them into conflict with Jesus so often. And from all appearances, you would see a Pharisee as a very godly person. Uh, They were very committed to reading and believing and practicing what the Bible taught. But that said, Jesus makes it clear that all of their commitment to read the Bible faithfully and to even uh, practice it faithfully, they are revealed as people who read it quite wrongly. He says uh, in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 39, He says, You search the Scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life, and yet it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. You love the Bible, but you've missed the whole point of it, He says. You know the Bible, you read the Bible, but you've missed the whole point of it. In Jesus' view, the Pharisees were pretenders. Later in Mark chapter 7, Jesus will tell the Pharisees that the prophet Isaiah was actually talking about them. He says to them, This people, quoting Isaiah, These Pharisees, you honor me with your lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. He says, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And near the end of his ministry, Jesus will get very bold and very direct. He will expose these Pharisees who had been troubling him so much through his three years of ministry. He'll say, look, you guys are externally clean and you're internally dead. He says in Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. Pretty direct. Those everyone thought on the outside were the faithful ones he exposed as unfaithful. Those who appeared pure, Jesus exposed as not clean. Those who appeared safe, Jesus will expose as not actually saved. And to make matters worse, as you see his interactions, Jesus exposes their pride as he draws near to those that he knows are spiritually clean, because everyone thinks and believes they are, who appear physically unsafe. These are the people that Jesus gravitates towards. And we have no greater example than the calling of Levi. Levi is also known as Matthew. His name has led some to believe that he was a member of the Levitical tribe, which is the priestly tribe, that he was supposed to be a pastor of all things. And that instead he abandoned that pursuit and he pursued a more lucrative career serving a king who was not Jesus. He was devoted to King Herod at the time and the Roman Empire. He served as a tax collector. He would sit at a booth daily in Jesus' home base of Capernaum, that was his area. Matthew would have been very well educated. He would have been extremely wealthy. He would have been quite greedy and he would have been much despised. His surprising invitation echoes the same invitation on the opposite side of the socioeconomic status, which was to these blue collar fishermen and would simply follow me. And like those disciples, Matthew immediately leaves everything that he has, walks out of the tax booth it seems, and he follows Jesus faithfully. The first thing he does is he invites Jesus into his own home with his friends. And there Jesus proceeds to relax and enjoy a meal with a lot of tax collectors and a lot of sinners. This upsets the scribes of the Pharisees who despise the fact that he would ever fellowship with such a dirty, sinful people. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 18, Jesus told a parable to the Pharisees. It was actually about the Pharisees to reveal their attitude toward people like tax collectors and really expose the ugliness in their hearts. In his parable, he told the story of two men who go up to the temple. There's a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee goes up and he stands and he prays this. Oh God, thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Obviously, how this Pharisee viewed this tax collector exposes a lot about how he views himself. He views himself as clean, as righteous, as superior, to this tax collector who stands with him in the same temple. The Pharisees considered tax collectors the example of a sinner, like the worst of worse. Romans actually had a very low view of tax collectors as well. They were said to have viewed them actually no better than brothel keepers. Rome had a unique system to collect taxes is what led to this view. They had what was called a a farm system of sorts to collect customs taxes. And what that meant was that various tax collectors, uh, usually men of great wealth, would bid for different geographic districts. So they'd go to Rome and they would say, I will give you this amount of money for this particular district, kind of like an auction. And bidding meant estimating how much you believed you would actually gain or get in taxes from a particular area. And then you would pay Rome in advance and then you would be allowed to collect taxes empowered, protected by Rome. And so winning that district meant you could collect taxes from anyone in the district and no one was watching and no one cared. And you actually had the authority to tax as high as you want, even if you taxed more than what you had paid Rome in advance. And so what that allowed, if you will, in this kind of system, was a lot of greed. And tax collectors became pretty known or well-known extortioners of people because they personally benefited from it. So all that to say, especially in the eyes of Pharisees, but in the eyes of most people in the region, Jesus chose one of the most hated men in society to be his disciple. And when the scribes of the Pharisees express contempt towards the kindness Jesus is showing to someone so wicked, he responds, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus' mission can be described quite simply as He came to save sinners. Not the clean, not the righteous, not the good, not the people who have it all together, not the healthy, but the sick. And he is without doubt speaking spiritually. And when we play the comparison game, when we compare ourselves to others spiritually, it's easy for us to consider ourselves healthier, not as dirty, Few of us consider ourselves actually sick and in need of a physician, and the Pharisees for sure did not see themselves as that. But Jesus characterizes himself as a doctor doing the work of saving the sick and only the sick. And while he has already proven he actually literally heals physical disease, this interaction with the paralytic that Mike talked about, where he could have very easily just said, hey, get up and walk, he said, your sins are forgiven, revealing that even at the core of our physical brokenness is a deeper issue, which is namely sin, that our sickness is truly spiritual. Jesus has come to save sinners by healing their hearts. And while these Pharisees regard themselves as righteous, as clean, as spiritually healthy, they are in two quite sick. It could be said that they are asymptomatic. Their symptoms maybe have not revealed themselves yet, but they are infected with a deadly disease that, left untreated, will lead to something worse than death. Now, back in that parable, Luke chapter 18, with the Pharisee and the tax collector both going to pray, the tax collector, Jesus describes, also prays something. He prays this. And it says that he stands far off while the Pharisee stands closer in. He is standing on the margins. He's away from the crowds. He has a sense that he doesn't belong. And this is what he prays. Standing far off. It says he would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The difference between those two could not be more distinct. The Pharisee only talks about his own goodness, the things he's achieved, the things he has done. And the tax collector recognizes he has none of those things. And he simply pleads God for mercy. Jesus didn't come for those who are considered or consider themselves worthy, but for tax collectors who know that they're not. The difference between the tax collector and the Pharisee is so clear. The tax collector and all who believe understand something the Pharisee does not, and that is grace. Grace. Undeserved, unearned love. Now, The Pharisees, as I said, are not aware that they are sick. They are not desperate for a physician, therefore. And that's because they believe that they've been inoculated from the big problem we have in life. They believe that they are safe by their religious excellence. Like many, they believe that their goodness would save them. If you ask the average person today, the average believer or non believer, but certainly I hope more non believers than believers, if you ask the average person, why should you go to heaven because most believe there is a place called heaven, they will largely default to their goodness. Like many, the Pharisees believe their goodness would save them, they believe that their capacity to be righteous would protect them from God's wrath. but When Jesus arrives, he does not teach some new and improved way of doing or being good. While he does have much to teach about moral living and things like the Sermon on the Mount, if you ask people about teaching, typically they will talk about the golden rule, things of that nature that Jesus taught. But this is not why Jesus came. This is not really at the core of what he taught. He actually preached that Death comes to all who sin, but salvation to all who surrender. But redemption, or this salvation, cannot be earned. And this is why it's so troubling for the Pharisees that Jesus refuses to follow the traditional ways like themselves. That he doesn't follow the traditional uh, cleansing rituals, if you will. Here, they're upset that Jesus doesn't fast, is one of the things. They didn't fast according to the traditions that they have. They don't fast like their disciples. They don't fast like John's disciples. He's like, why don't your disciples fast like everyone else's? Now, biblically, if you were to read the Scriptures, you would see that the law of God suggests actually only one fast once a year, and that is around the Day of Atonement. But see, over the years, God's people started creating different fasts, and they started observing uh, different things to commemorate experiences that they'd had in the exile, and certain events, and they would have a fast for it. And though well-intended, which most traditions begin that way, these traditions multiplied, and they grew in frequency and over time. At the time of Christ, these fasts were at their climax, and the Pharisees encouraged people fasting a couple times a week. And as you read the Gospels, you realize pretty quickly that their fasting was less actually about worshiping God, and on the whole, more about impressing people with their piety. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus condemns people for fasting with such glum faces. They would walk around, and, and kind of whimper and kind of just put on an ugly face like, oh yeah, well I'm fasting. And they wanted people to be impressed. They wanted people to see and make a big deal that they were so righteous. And truly, in their view, religion and faith in God was something solemn. It was something that was designed to be uncomfortable. Well, when asked why His disciples aren't doing that, Jesus provides an interesting metaphor, it's a wedding, and in doing so, he, con- he, he totally contrasts what his view, if you will, of spirituality is with theirs, and he shows that, that his experience is comparable to a wedding, like being the joy of a wedding feast, being in the presence of the groom, that's supposed to be a time of joy, a time of celebration with God and family, See, ancient Jewish weddings didn't actually have honeymoons as we understand them today. They actually had a week-long open house party. And the friends of the bridegroom would never fast on this kind of occasion because they were responsible to ensure the party continued for this new couple for a week. That was their job. So it was to create joy and celebration and remove whatever hindrances might make things actually uncomfortable or glum. Jesus provides an additional image to explain how strange it would be for his disciples to fast. One image famously is about a new cloth that's sewn onto an old garment and it shrinks and it tears the old garment. And another is about new wine and old wineskins and how the old wineskins burst when the new wine ferments and is put into these things. And both point to the same basic truth that the new pulls away from the old or the new cannot be contained by the old. Both of them are destroyed if you try. And simply Jesus reveals that he is doing something new. New. Something different that's not going to fit into their traditional framework of ritual, man-made ritual, and that we're going to see it's going to be replaced by this relationship that they never could have imagined, an intimacy and communion with God that they never thought was even possible. And I thought it noteworthy to think that many of our religious rituals, meeting in groups, gathering as the church, different studies, singing together. They've been taken away during this time. They've been stripped down. And I think many of us, at least myself, are left to ask, what is our faith without these traditions? What is our faith if these rituals aren't possible? Is communion with Christ enough right now? Is communion with Christ rich right now? Am I too dependent upon these rituals? I have no doubt that the Pharisees get a pretty bad rap, but I think many of these Pharisaical traditions that we talk about, I think it probably helped many of these men actually draw closer to God. I do believe that. But it seems like for many more, these what are probably best described as extra-biblical traditions had become a god unto themselves. They had become too poor and too important. They had become more supreme than the supremacy of Christ, and that is where Christ confronts them. The inherent danger in man-made traditions is pretty obvious right? There are many man-made traditions in the rituals. No one requires us to have road groups. No one requires us to have youth ministry. No one requires us to sing, though we do see the implication and the joy of that in Scripture. Like, none of these are required. And so we can see, like, well, that's not necessary, and that's not necessary, but what about God's commands? What about the things He commands? Those are the things that we got to draw a line on. And this is where the Pharisees go. It goes from tradition into law. After multiple interactions, the conflict between the religious leaders and Jesus kind of intensifies. And it it comes uh, into uh, a full climax with a confrontation over the fourth commandment of God's law. And that is to remember the Sabbath. This command was uh, so it helped organize really the weekly life of a Jewish family. Um, the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition, the interpretation of the law that was eventually written down, it was oral and then it became written down, um, that provides commentary on what it meant to observe the day of rest, and that makes sense because the Law, remember the Sabbath, is is pretty plain, right? It's not like there's not a lot of of explanation in that. And so, as we would as pastors, they began to go like, well, it must mean this or it must mean that. And so, essentially, uh, they gave commentary on what that meant. And the Jews established all kinds of of, uh, rules around the law to inform how to practice this law. And so they had upwards of 40 different categories of activity that was forbidden on the day of rest. Things you couldn't do. This included carrying stuff, burning stuff, cooking, writing, erasing, untying, shaping, plowing, spinning, and reaping. Like all kinds of things. And this is why the Pharisees are so upset. Like one of the things you couldn't do was reap. So they're walking through a wheat field, grabbing heads of grain, reaping, and they're like, look, they're doing what the law forbids. You're not supposed to work on the day of rest. They are breaking the law of God. They're not just breaking our traditions. They're now breaking the law of God. And so, interestingly, Jesus responds by reminding the Bible thumpers about a Bible story. He tells... The Pharisees about King David who when he was in need at one point before he had ascended to the throne he actually went into the house of God and ate the holy bread. The holy bread was there by design. It was put there every week replaced on the Sabbath and was only to be eaten by the priests. And yet he feasted in his need. This is why Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You could easily say that the law in many ways was made for man and not man for the law. He reminds the Pharisees that the fourth commandment, and really all of God's law, was designed as a blessing. It was designed as a blessing. We don't often think of law as blessing. That's not the first, we think of rules, we think of restrictions. The law was designed to be a blessing. It was designed to help Israel remain certainly separate, but healthy and happy and holy. And the Pharisees have turned this particular part of the law, which was supposed to be a blessing into a great burden. This confrontation reaches its climax as you go into chapter three, where Jesus goes into the synagogue. And the Pharisees are watching because it's still the Sabbath, right? They've, they've walked through the fields, picked the uh, heads of grain, and Jesus walks in the synagogue, and there's a man there with a withered hand. He's like, all right, what's he going to do? Is he going to heal this man on the Sabbath? Is he going to do a work? And so Jesus senses what they're doing, and he just asks them flat out, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to kill, but they are silent. In verse five of chapter three, it says, he looked around at them, angered and grieved at their hardness of heart. And he says to the man who was with a withered hand, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. From this point, the Pharisees work with, who are somewhat of their political enemies, The Herodians, everyone's getting together to try and destroy Jesus. They have become so blinded by their own interpretation of the Bible that it's noteworthy to see that they don't even give one thought to the man whose hand is healed. They are so blinded by their theology and their particular interpretation of the Sabbath that they can't celebrate the miracle that just happened right in front of their face. In fact, it makes them want to destroy the miracle worker. It could be said, and this doesn't happen to everyone, maybe it doesn't happen to many ones, but I'm sure it happens to someone, that their love of studying God's word actually hindered them from seeing God's work right in front of them. Jesus is not rejecting religion, and he's certainly not rejecting the Word of God. What he is doing is restoring God's law to its rightful place. What I mean by that, the law was never designed to save us from the power of sin, but it was given as a grace to protect life from the effects of sin. It was given as a grace. And Jesus, again, reveals His authority. He is authoritative over demons, authoritative over disease and nature, and we see He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is authoritative over even God's law. And yet, you will see His invitation is not one of burden like the Pharisees, not one to obey this law, you need to adhere to this law. I have always appreciated Matthew chapter 11 where he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'm going to give you rest. There's the Sabbath. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus takes what is a heavy burden, and he makes, if you will, work even delightful, work full of joy because you're working with him. Now the Pharisees, as I said, they want to destroy Jesus for such a reckless faith. How could you be so reckless? How could you go against God's word like this? And what I find is you're talking about men and women who um, you know, are, are very, if you will, fundamentalist, for lack of a better word, They are the ones like the Pharisees who read the Bible, know the Bible, and yet don't really miss, get the point of the Bible. And I find it noteworthy here that Jesus, though that angers him and it should anger us, someone who's a, quote, legalist, someone who believes that their self-righteousness is is dependent upon their perfect obedience, that should be angering, especially when that burden is put upon others. But did you note that Jesus also was grieved? He was grieved at their hardness of heart. It's interesting in this strange time where people are spending way too much time on social media, I find interesting exchanges going on and my pastor friend of mine asked me how I was experiencing. I said, I see two categories of people in the church and they're both attacking one another. Those who are fearless and those who are faithless. And neither are helping one another. Yes, we are not to be fearful. And yes, we are to be faithful. Um, But fear is quite natural. And concern is something to um, be wise about. Uh, At the same time, um, we don't have much patience for the quote faithful. I say quote faithful um, because I can often sound like Pharisees calling people to not fear, calling to people like, you know, faith over fear. I find that many of us stand really ready to show grace to tax collectors and to the disease and to the disabled. But how ready are we to offer grace to the fundamentalist and to the hypocrite and to the Bible thumper? Jesus was still grieved by these men. And he will spend time with men like Nicodemus who come to faith, who was a Pharisee. But even as Jesus confronts those who think they are safe, we actually get the sense that he still wants to save them too. And so I had to ask myself as I look at these interactions, do I identify more with the tax collector? Do I identify more with just the diseased and the disabled who just want Jesus to help me? Or do I identify with the Pharisee at times? Well, As we conclude, we have learned a lot just about Jesus and the difference, perhaps, with the religious leaders, but I wanted to take it to our present day and just kind of consider in the strangest irony, irony, at least socially speaking, we are living at a time where we have a lot of rules, a lot of new rules that we haven't maybe adhered to or had to follow in the past, and these rules are helpful, at least they're designed to keep us safe, Whether they are an overreaction or not, time will tell. But the men and the women who are putting this in place, unless you are the full-fledged conspiracy theorist, which many might be, I believe that they are designed, foolishly or wisely, to be helpful. Some are good wisdom recommendations. There are other rules that are now law that we have to adhere to. And perhaps it goes without saying, but these restrictions on our freedoms have a potential diminishing effect on our joy in our daily lives. As we just go about our daily lives, things are restricted and the lack of freedom makes things just a little more uncomfortable. As we project what might be coming in the future, it becomes even more uncomfortable. And yet, many will endure these restrictions because we understand these rules serve a good, if just temporary, purpose. They are guiding us through a time of sickness into a time of hopeful health. But we without doubt look forward, many of us strongly, to returning to that life of freedom, returning to the life of joy that is restriction free. So this is a great analogy, I think, for our spiritual journey and what is happening here with the interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees. These rules, if you will, are keeping us safe, but they are not what is going to save us. Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that God's law was designed to serve as a tutor to lead us to Christ. And it was leading us to Christ so that we might realize that we have a complete inability to be good enough. And we have to be saved by grace. The rules of God were not designed to save us, to point us somewhere. And in many ways, even God's rules were designed to keep us temporarily safe, like a guardian on a path to salvation by grace through faith. But did you know something? Did you know that we can follow those rules perfectly? And just like our world today, we can, we can adhere to every rule perfectly and not get the virus. And we will still die. Every one of us is going to die whether we get the virus or not, whether we follow the rules perfectly or not, no matter how clean we are, we will die. And spiritually speaking, that is also true. Even now laws and traditions, even ones that help our devotion to the Lord, they are also going to expose in many ways that we are weak. And while These rules might be effective in helping to cleanse our hands, spiritually speaking, purify our mouths, spiritually speaking, even captivate our thoughts. We must remember they can't clean one thing. None of them can clean our hearts. For we are defiled, Jesus says, not by what goes into our body, but what comes out. We have an internal problem. And this is where Jesus is trying to reach the Pharisees. He's trying to say that, look, He alone can restore us and save us. But Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He didn't come for those who think they're righteous. He didn't come for those who think, well, I followed enough rules. I probably have earned a ticket in. He came for those who are sick. He came for those who are dying who came for those like the tax collector in his parable who knew they weren't worthy and they cried out to God for mercy. I've said it before and I'll say it again and I'll continue to say it throughout this season. Spiritually speaking, which is the most important kind of speaking, there are worse dangers than disease and death. And while rules can help keep us safe, too much devotion to them can fool us into believing that we are saved because of the quantity or the quality of our obedience. That is not what saves. Let us never forget that salvation does not come from those who pretend does not come to those who pretend to be clean, but those who are willing to stretch out their hand and admit you cannot fix yourself, to admit that you are more dirty than you could ever cleanse, that you're more desperate and sick in need of a physician to heal your soul. And what does Jesus say? Clean yourself up. No, he says, come to me and I will give you rest. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sending of your son. Lord, we know that you are a holy God. We know that you expect perfection and to enter enter into your presence And while we can pretend, Lord, that we can get close to it, we still fall so short of your glory. Yes, we do bad things. Yes, we make mistakes. But even our good things fall short, Lord, of your perfect standard. Forgive us, Lord, for trying to do that. And help us, Lord, to receive the grace of salvation where we have the freedom to admit that we are more sick and desperate than anyone might know, but you know, but you tell us you are more loved than you could possibly imagine. Lord, you demonstrate your love for us and that while we were sick and sinful, you sent your son. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you, Jesus, for inviting us closer to you. Thank you, Jesus, for having mercy upon the tax collectors who look really dirty to the world and for having mercy and grace for the Pharisees who look really clean in the eyes of the world, both that are in need of a Savior. And his name is Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.